And now, live from Atlanta, Georgia, everyone's social media friend, it's Deb Creer. Every week, Deb talks with the movers and shakers, the experts, the best of the best in social media, bringing you all of the latest tips, techniques, and trends for successfully using social media. In social media, there's only one constant, Deb Creer. Morning, good morning, everyone. I am Deb Creer. I'm the socialite, and I am passionate about helping professionals to use social media to promote themselves and their businesses. And we're going to deviate a little bit today from talking strictly about social media because this is a very, very cool topic. It will include social media, but it is just for each and every business owner, solopreneur, entrepreneur, even if you're just promoting yourself and the, the, the you know, some topic that you want, this information is so important. And so I would like to welcome Ted Wright. Welcome, Ted. Thanks, Deb. I'm really glad to be here with you. Great, great. Well, you know, let me tell folks just a little bit about you. So Ted is the CEO of Fizz Corp. Um, and what we will do is uh, ask a little bit more about that because that's just a cool name. But Ted has been at the forefront of word of mouth marketing. We'll really learn about that since he helped reignite the Pabst Blue Ribbon brand in 2000. Over the last decade, his agency has become a global leader in word-of-mouth marketing with clients on every continent. Often called the best WOMM speaker working today, Ted has won numerous public speaking awards for his talks on WOMM and always elicits more questions than a Q&A can handle, and I can attest to that. An alumnus of Bose Allen and Hamilton, Ted holds an MBA with honors from the University of Chicago. He also enjoys great bourbon and drives too fast, but never at the same time. So again, please welcome Ted. Deb, you have made my mother proud um, um, with that lovely intro. Thank you so much. You know, that making moms proud is always my goal. I have to tell you, my mom will be listening to this program. She always listens in, doesn't always quite understand what we're talking about, but she is my biggest fan, which is always so cool. Excellent. Well, hi, Mom. <laughs> she's just, oh, now she's just thrilled. So let's jump in because, as I mentioned, I actually heard you speak. I heard you speak at Inbound Atlanta, which was a fabulous marketing conference and one of the things that they gave us in the swag bags, and we'll talk, I'm hoping, a little bit about swag as we, we go through this, they provided us with a copy of your book. And you know, kudos to Inbound Atlanta. This was the best swag bag I'd ever gotten because it had the books from every one of the speakers. But I picked yours up, and especially after hearing you speak, I thought, oh, this is just absolutely phenomenal. So let me tell folks what the title of the book is. It's called Fizz. Harness the Power of Word-of-Mouth Marketing to Drive Brand Growth. And it's funny, I, I review a lot of books for this program. Typically, I can buzz through them pretty fast. Your book took me hours to read, and that was because it had such great content that I really wanted to make sure that I was soaking it all in. Um, you know, And, and it, it was. It was a fabulous read, and that light bulb above my head kept going off. And and especially, we'll talk a little bit about it pretty soon, about social media because it was like, oh, there's an epiphany here. <laughs> you know? So first, tell people what word-of-mouth marketing is. So thanks, Devin. You're very kind. Um, I uh, put a lot of effort into the book, and so I'm glad it's, uh, I'm glad it's finding an audience. Um, so word-of-mouth marketing is, is just this. It is the creation of a platform or an opportunity for your influencers to understand more about your brand's product or service, mm -hmm. and also for those same influencers to be able to share with as many people as possible the joy that they find in using your brand's product or service. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that 10% of the U.S. population has this influencer personality. And, mm -hmm. and an influencer personality has three dominant traits in it. They like to try mm -hmm. new things because they're new. 
They like to share stories with their friends, and they're intrinsically motivated. And because right. they like to do all three of those things, and those are the their most favoriteest things to do, mm-hmm. you get influencers, and you get people who love sharing their stories stories about stuff that they find that they love with all of their friends. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's important to note that these influencers aren't necessarily, and maybe even quite often aren't the first adopters of something. Um, you know, we've, we've all heard those terms before where you've got your first adopters, especially of technology and, and things like that. And sometimes these influencers maybe wait for the dust to settle or, you know, some things like that. But it's for them, it is it is a passion. It's not I have to try the newest thing. It's I have to try the newest thing about whatever that is that they they really love. Right. Well, and what's interesting is that influencers aren't necessarily first adopters. They're not even Mm -hmm. necessarily early adopters. Influencers come all across the product life cycle. It's Mm -hmm. do they really find that they love this product or service and the story behind it so much that they want to go talk about it? You know, is it, as Seth Godin referred to, you know, is it a purple cow? Is it really remarkable in the technical Mm -hmm. senses? I would like to remark to somebody about this. The other really interesting thing about influencers is that when they're going through and they're finding things that they're passionate about and they're finding different uh, products and services that fit their passions, They are reminding themselves, oh, I'm going to see X, Y, Z person in, you know, so many weeks down the road or so many days down the road. I need to remember to tell them this. And then Mm -hmm. when they are, you know, seeing each other at some PTA meeting or at soccer practice or wherever it is that they're seeing, they're like, oh, by the way, I know this thing about you, my friend. And mm-hmm. I know this thing about this product or service that I ran into, and I need to connect you to because I think because of this thing that you love or this thing about you, you would really love this. Right. And then people say, wow, that's, you know, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that, that you point out in your book is a, a key feature of an influencer is they know exactly who to talk to. You know, they're not going to tell somebody who could care less about something. You know, they they might mention a little snippet. Maybe it's a, a new restaurant. And they say, hey, you know, we tried out this great new restaurant. If that person doesn't care, they let it drop. But if they know that person is the foodie, then it's like you said, you know, days, weeks, months later, they might tell them, oh, you should check out X restaurant because I know how much you love burgers and bourbon. You know, and, and so you, you know, and, and so they're, they're very selective about who they tell. And I think that's part of why they're so success, successful at being an influencer. Right. So in general, an influencer shares a story if it has, if it has three components. Is it interesting mm-hmm. to the influencer so they pick mm-hmm. it up and they really understand it? Is it relevant to the influencer's audience? And is it authentic to the way the influencer currently understands either the category in general or the brand in specific? And I'll give you a good example, actually, from my own life that one of my cousins brought up to me. So the, the, the James Beard Awards are basically the top awards for restaurant and bar in the United States. And mm-hmm. I happen to, you know, enjoy a nice meal. If I'm going to go out, I, I'd like to have something that's tasty. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be the most expensive, but I would really like it to be good. So the James Beard list came out. And there was – I live in Atlanta, and there is a new restaurant on there that was listed as a nominee for best new restaurant uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I immediately call them and make a uh, reservation for six, and I send a, a, an email to one of my cousins, and it just said, Beard Nom, N-O-M, period, mm-hmm. want to go, question mark, you know, and then have the date. Right. And, so, and they knew exactly what you meant. Well, so that was the funny thing. So my, so we're sitting there having dinner. We're talking about stuff. And then my cousin goes, you know, I thought your email was hilarious because of all of the people in our family, you know, extended family. We have 103 people that will show up for Christmas dinner this year at our house and we're mm-hmm. all related by blood or marriage. So we have lots of folks. And he said, I'm probably the only person and my wife are the only two people that would have understood your email. And this gets mm-hmm. to exactly your point. If, if in fact, I were an influencer, and I'm not saying that I am, that's for other people to decide, 
but influencers only share stories with people that they think are going to care about them. And I have, you know, another set of cousins who I love dearly and they're super fun, but they would know a good meal if it fell off of the truck and right in mm -hmm. front of them. And because that's just not their thing. Uh, they have other things. They know more about water skiing than anybody else on the planet. So if I had a water skiing question or wanted to know about more about water skiing, I would come talk to them about any aspect mm -hmm. of that. But I think it's really interesting from from an influencer perspective and just from a brand perspective of people that are trying to optimize their spend. When you go into a channel that is, in fact, not that whole advertising saw of 50 percent of all my information is wasted. I just don't know which half. Mm -hmm. Influencers do not do that. Influencers seek to share stories with their friends about people they think will care. And they do that because they get so much great joy out of sharing stories with other people and then having them come back and say, oh my God, I did try XYZ thing. Mm -hmm. I really liked it. Thank you very much. In fact, mm -hmm. they get three times the amount of joy of the average North American. So influencer marketing, word of mouth marketing, this mar marketing channel that you're working with, one, not only do, can you not buy your way into this, but mm -hmm. none, you can't buy access to anybody's friends. You have to earn it. Right. And nobody's ever going to share information with somebody that they think going in is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and one of the things you mentioned that I think is, is very important is the fact that someone else decides if you're the influencer. You know, it's not that I go, I'm going to become an influencer in X. You know, we, we might have that goal, but if we're not careful about it, we come across as the know-it-all, as the pushy, as, you know, I hate to say it, but the used car salesman. You know, it's only when other people value our opinion and our suggestions and things like that that we actually are that influencer. Yes, I, I equate being an influencer to being beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the very rare person that can pull off going up to somebody and saying, hello, I'm beautiful. They, mm -hmm. You have to rely on other people to decide that for themselves. And if they want to put you in that category, they will. And if right. they don't, then there's nothing you can do about it. This is the same thing about influencers, which makes it tough for companies because they're mm -hmm. like, oh, and small businesses, large businesses, whatever, is because they want to be like, oh, I want everybody to love me. And so I want to get out there and tell people and I want to, I want to make sure because these same, especially larger companies, they're used to doing a lot of broadcast. You know, basically broadcast is written for the mindset of a 10-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. um, and, in, and so you have to really go down to lowest common denominator to make sure that everybody's going to get your message. Influencer marketing has to assume that everybody who's going to hear this message is intelligent. Now, right. they might be, you know, there's different levels of intelligence and different types of intelligence, but everybody is going to be intelligent. Everybody is going to be smart in the sense of when somebody hears this story about this product or service, they're able to make their own decision about whether or not it's really useful for them. And if mm -hmm. it is, great. And they'll go out and they'll act on that information. And if not, also great. Because then you as a company don't spend any of your time and treasure trying to market to somebody who's never going to care. Right. Well, and the way that word of mouth marketing differs from standard advertising and, and broadcast, as you call it, is, in my view, kind of the push-pull thing. You know, standard advertising, we push at people. You know, we, we put commercials out there. We buy Facebook ads. We have billboards. We do, you know, um, advertising in newspapers. But the influencer people have, you know, it's not maybe that they come to them, but that, that influencer is, he's not pushing the information at them. They're kind of pulling it out of him. Good point. That's exactly right. And in what is also really interesting about influencers is that they, not only are they pushing information out, but an influencer basically has that part of their personality is pretty stable by the time they're 10 years old. So by mm -hmm. the time that we as marketers get to them, They've got 10, 20, maybe even 30 years of creating this network of people who not only are ready for your information, but when they have a question about it, 
they come and talk to you. Mm-hmm. So I was just in a meeting and somebody says, oh, you mean like my friend Loretta? And I said, yes, tell us about Loretta. And she's like, well, a Loretta knows everything about all these vacation destinations. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, you know, I hear you're going to Maui. Just remember the Whole Foods and the Costco are right near the Maui airport. So when you pick up your car, go left and left and go down two blocks, and that's where the Costco and that's where the Whole Foods is. Buy all of your food there before traveling to your house or your condo or whatever they had rented. Mm-hmm. And this person went. They did it just that way. They had a great experience, and they didn't have to drive all over the island figuring out where the grocery stores were. They could, you know, they basically blew right by while they were on their way between the airport and the hotel. And they had a great time. And here it is seven months later, and this woman is still retelling this story right. about my friend who is now, everyone realizes, now an influencer. And mm-hmm. they know that. And the cool thing is we all have friends that are like this. The mm-hmm. question is, how are we as companies going to I- find these people, identify these people, and be able to activate them on our behalf? Right. Well, Tell us the story about Pabst Blue Ribbon, um, because that really shows why word of mouth marketing is so very important um, and and truly how it differs from straight advertising that we're so used to. So Pabst Blue Ribbon, so let me just back up in the whole story of the Pabst Brewing Company. The Pabst Brewing Company was put together by this man who decided he was going to buy every beer brand uh, that had been big in the 60s and 70s and then mm-hmm. had, had started and started to decline. So that's Pabst Blue Ribbon, that's Pearl, that's Peels, that's Rainier, basically your local brew wherever was your big, your grandfather's brew where when he was growing up, uh, that his basically was in decline by the 80s. So he bought all these brands and he ended up owning 42 beer brands across the United States. And he was chugging along and unfortunately and sadly, uh, he had a huge heart attack and basically was one of these things where he was dead before he hit the ground. Um, yeah. yeah, it was just one of these awful things. So they had to sell the company and, you know, in his wife, you know, it was in his will. And so they sold the company. And so here we come in the year 2001. And I had just gotten out of business school and I, where I had had kind of my Eureka word of mouth moment. Mm-hmm. And I was out searching for a client. And the CEO of the Pabst Brewing Company, who had just recently been brought in, his name was Brian Kovalchuk. Mm-hmm. And Brian was very gracious and sat down with me. I mean, I'd been pitching people all across the country. And at the end of it, he says, I have no idea if you're an idiot or a genius or somewhere in between, because <laughs> I got all these other brands, but I'll give you this junky brand that was technically 39th in volume and 41st in profitability. And mm-hmm. so technically speaking, they were losing every beer, extra beer they sold, they would lose more money. Oh dear. And yes, not good. And so I will give you a chance. I'll give you three months and a couple and you know a couple of markets. And here meet uh, a guy named Neil Stewart. And Neil was 22, 23 years old at the time. His mm-hmm. job previous to that was uh, basically doing A1 steak sauce demonstrations throughout the Midwest. And he said, you know, this is going to be your brand manager, and you're going to work with him, and you guys you know, go forth. And I'm going to go worry about all the other brands that are a big deal. So. I, you know, I, I want to preface that by saying, you know, no man is an island and no one person is ever in charge of, you know, making something happen. Right. So mm-hmm. it was the three of us. And then we had all people that kind of worked for us and we went off. And, and the story of Pabst is that when Neil and I were doing all of the work and we're looking at all of the different variables and different options that were out there, what we noticed was that everybody who was of legal drinking age in the United States at the time had to be one they had to be 21 years or older which means they had to be born in 1980 or earlier mm-hmm. if you were born in 1980 or earlier you had a significant chance that your parents were yuppies right yuppies in the sense of they basically yuppieism in its beginning was basic, it was a political movement and it was a political movement that was about, hey, we're going to kind of retake 
rules and regulations and traditions, and we're going to kind of uphold those. And that was in direct response to sort of the 1960s and Woodstock and sort of all the rest of that. So with these people, with these people that were yuppies, one of the things they decided to do was they decided to adopt brands that were basically from the northeastern United States or from England, those places mm-hmm. that were most steeped in very strict traditions. And they were going to use those and basically use those to brand themselves that they were a part of this group. So that's mm-hmm. the Financial Times, which is an orange – was a newspaper with orange-colored paper. It's Burberry. It's uh, L.L. Bean. It's uh, button-down shirts from J. Press. Mm-hmm. It's all the rest of these things. So – Fast forward into 2000, if your parents are yuppies, yuppiedom at its extreme starts to become about having things just to have things, you know, Mm -hmm. that whole keeping up with the Joneses. And it gets very materialistic very quickly. So one of the great traditions of the United States is to thank your parents for paying for your college and your high school and for raising you by upon uh, on graduation actively and loudly rejecting all of their all of the things that they brought you right think, doing the exact opposite doing the exact opposite and the exact opposite of that is a po- is a political movement here that's very active in the United States now that is called hipsterism and mm-hmm. hipsterism leaving off that you know every any political movement ends up having a costume and there are people mm-hmm. that actually buy the costume and just kind of wear it around and do right. stuff. But in fact, hipsterism as a political movement is the rejection of things and the embracing of experience. Mm. So we had noticed this, Neil and I. And mm-hmm. so because we were doing a lot of ethnographic studies, you know, we were going out to Portland, Oregon, and we were watching what was going on out there because there were some more sales out there. And we were in going to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we were noticing some upticks of sales there. And so we were going, we were checking out. And, you know, it basically was Neil and I hanging out in bars, talking to people, and then the Simpsons pinball machine had come out like two months earlier. So that was mm-hmm. kind of all over the place in all these bars. So we're playing the Simpsons pinball machine, talking to people, and drinking PBRs. Mm-hmm. So what we discovered is that hipsterism, the way we boiled it down, was about celebrating those things that people wanted to do because they wanted to do them, not because they wanted to be seen doing them. So we, that was our aha moment. That was our, that was our big data insight. And mm-hmm. so we then took that and said, okay, how can we activate this against this? And we decided we were going to activate it by having brand managers in the local markets go find these groups of people that were doing things just because they seemed to be wanting to do them, not because they wanted to be seen doing them, they just wanted to be doing them, and then show up and ask questions and maybe participate. And then at some point, somebody within there would say, so what do you do for a living? And they could say, I work for Pabst Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what do you do? And he's like, I go around and have conversations with people. And they're like, so your job is to go to cool things and just talk to people if they want to talk to you. About beer. About <laughs> beer or just about anything, right? And mm-hmm. that was an interesting right. thing that, you know, we pulled all those original brand managers, we pulled them from the markets themselves. And sometimes mm-hmm. – they were from, you know, they were a part of these subcultures. So we had this one woman uh, in Chicago, and this is, I mean, this is early 2000, way before when tattoos used to be a mark of criminality or, <laughs> or jail time and not necessarily like that was hip and cool. And she was just covered in tattoos because she just thought tattoos were cool. And in fact, she thought tattoos were cool and going all the way back to like the Japanese woodblock print days. Wow. And, and all this stuff. And then this guy that we hired in Philadelphia he was the lead guitarist for a rockabilly band. And so mm-hmm. we hired all these people who basically had fallen in love with things that nobody else cared about. And therefore, everybody else supposedly thought that they were weird, but they were really passionate about them. And so we thought that was cool because mm-hmm. the honest truth is that 
there was a time when it didn't really make a lot of economic sense to keep doing a lot of these beer brands. But the people that were working on them, they just really loved making them. And so we mm -hmm. kept doing it. And we kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And our kind of crazy was the same as the hipsters kind of crazy. When asked, why are you doing this? Um, because we like to. Because it's fun. Yeah, because it's fun. And so everybody mm -hmm. was like, well, that's awesome. And one thing you know about people in general, if you go to somebody who's very passionate about something and you're interested in that and you're truly interested in that and you truly think it's cool, they will reflect some of that back on you. They mm -hmm. will think you're cool because you think they're cool. So here we have a bunch of people who are out there doing things just because they, quote, don't want to be noticed. They just want to be doing these things. And here comes some brand who notices them. But you mm -hmm. notice them in such a way that doesn't say, hey, now do something for me. Literally, as a brand, we would just look at them and go, hey, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And then eventually somebody says, hey, would you like to come to this party? Well, sure, we'll come to the party. And so we go to the party and we see stuff like all these guys in Oregon are cooling down their beers by doing a, a layer of beer, a layer of ice, a layer of beer, a layer of ice, and they're doing them in their washing machines. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing it in their washing machines? Because the next morning, their party cleanup is just to turn on the go button. The hot water is <laughs> right. I know. As a mom and as a woman, you're like laughing at this. But if you're a guy who's super into river running and is a part-time waiter, you know, four nights a week so they can make mm -hmm. enough money for rent so he can keep running class four and class five rapids, this is a piece of mechanical genius. Right. And so because, you know, it, it, it insulates well. And, you know, and it washes out. And so we would see these things and we're like, now that's really neat. And so we would tell other people and they're like, that's really cool. And we would find things and sometimes we would remake them. And so we found street artists and we found lowrider bicycle people. And we found bike messengers that were also interested in Plutarch or whatever. They were a bike messenger and they're also sitting for their, you know, PhD at NYU in you know, mm -hmm. Roman philosophy or something like that. And we're just and we just thought it was cool. And so people would say, oh, you know, you want to come by? And, and we would. And then we're just spreading the story. And then the, the other honest truth is people who join tribes, even though they think they're unique, you know, are not. They're just trading right. one uniform for another. Mm -hmm. And so we became a brand that people could badge to themselves that basically they felt like that they were saying, hey, I have it sold out. So mm -hmm. even though I might be here in San Francisco and I might be trading stocks in sort of the, the pre-internet bust San Francisco and I'm sitting there, but I'm still drinking PBR in a can. So to mm -hmm. me, I feel like I'm telling other people that I haven't sold out and that people are seeing me and they're thinking, oh, even though he's a stockbroker, he hasn't really sold out because he's, he's still cool. Yeah, he's still down with the people. And that defines, to use your word, that defines what cool is. You know, mm -hmm. I'm doing this because I want to be doing it, not because I want to be seen doing it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we grew it and, you know, it's the number one beer in its category and took all this volume from everybody else. And, you know, I think it, it was Fast Company a couple of weeks ago, just named it the sixth best marketing business turnaround in the last 20 years. Cool. Well, and I think what's so important about this is they didn't do traditional advertising. I mean, you know, I'm sure there was probably a little bit, but, you know, I'm, I'm from Colorado. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to that little world world called Coors. Yes. And, you know, and, and seeing, you know, and, and of course, you know, all of the other advertising and about the only PBR advertising that I ever remember seeing growing up would have been and, and then, you know, even through the, these later years is things like rodeo sponsorship. And, you know, some of those that really are kind of definitely not mainstream. You know, and, and so I remember seeing, you know, the PBR uh, championships for rodeo and, and things like that. But, you know, certainly no commercials and, and, you know, things like that. I mean, you know, nobody's going up against Coors and Budweiser. I mean, you know, for, for an advertising budget and, and especially Budweiser. So I think that's one of the things that, that helped with this is, word of mouth took it in a different direction and you know and, and it's important to note 
that that wasn't free. You know, we, they were still paying you. There were still obviously all sorts of, of expenses that were pertaining to this, but they just went in a different way that worked for them. Yes, they, they yes, it costs money. Um, yes, there was very little other advertising. I mean, very, um, I will suggest you just since you mentioned the rodeo, um, mm-hmm. some people think it is. Um, so PBR also stands for professional bull riders. And so, uh-huh. so, so I'm backwards. Sometimes, <laughs> yes. Sometimes people will say, oh, are you sponsoring bull riding? And we, uh-huh. I'd be, I'd be looking around. Wrong acronym. I don't think so, but hang on. Let me call Brian. Hey, Brian. Uh-huh. He's like, no, we don't have the money for that. And then, you know, he would just sort of hang up the phone because he thought I was mm-hmm. trying to ask him for that. So in fact, the first eight, nine, 10 years that we were doing that work, there was absolutely no purchased media mm-hmm. anywhere in the United States. It was all word of mouth, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say that word of mouth and broadcast can't go well together. Um, Pepsi, um, let's see, let me remember it. Pepsi, Intuit, AT&T, and Weight Watchers just put a mm-hmm. bunch of money into an, a very long study about word of mouth, basically asking, okay, we're never going to not do television. We're never not going to do right. sponsorships. Mm-hmm. How does word of mouth help this? And they mm-hmm. just released the study in the last month. They just released the results of the study in the last month. And it said many good things. But the best thing it said from a from a, the point of view of a broadcaster or somebody who buys a lot of broadcast time is if you tie a word of mouth marketing campaign in with your – broadcast by your media by your all your traditional media it mm-hmm. makes your traditional media that broadcast by 15 percent more effective on average right. across all possible metrics you're measuring against well and it's it's kind of that it it you know you're thinking about it already so then when you see the ad you're like oh yeah you know i, I wanted to go buy that soda or call weight watchers or whatever you know so it's it you're it, it is so true that they tie together Yes. So what's really what's really interesting is um, what makes this, I think, so interesting for me is that the utility of broadcast today mm-hmm. is about getting two people that are in close physical proximity to another to remind one of those people to tell the other a story about that branded product or service that they just that's on advertised. Mm-hmm. Because eight out of ten North Americans will tell you that they do not t- trust companies to tell the truth in their marketing advertising. Right. Right. So it's Deb and I are sitting on a sofa somewhere, and an ad comes up for you know Southwest Airlines. Let's say for mm-hmm. example, the utility of me of that ad to Southwest is me telling you, oh my God, you know I fly them thirty times a year. And they mm-hmm. really are good, and they really get you, and they're so nice. And as long as you get there early or pay the extra $5, you always get a good seat. Right. Right. And, and sa- mathematically speaking, Southwest Airlines, in order to get the same amount of believability between you and uh, about you, about that story, Southwest mm-hmm. Airlines would have to show you 100 commercials wow. before you would get the same amount of, oh, I think this is true, I think – Mm-hmm. I believe this as one conversation with me. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned something that it really was the epiphany for me um, as I was reading your book because I'm a social media person. And, you know, I always tell people, oh, social media is word of mouth on steroids. And as I'm reading your book, I thought, oh, hmm, I need to rethink this. And and it's still important. We'll talk about that. But what you said was so critical. You and I were sitting on the couch talking about Southwest. It's that face-to-face. And, you know, and, and as I thought about this as I was reading your book, I thought, you know what? That's so true. And while I might post on Facebook, hey, you know, I'm thinking of flying, what's the best airline? I get back, you know, four or five comments, maybe 10, 20, you know, who knows? But they're very superficial. And, and even if, you know, somebody goes a little bit further and says, I like them because – it is still that face-to-face where we really get that information that we need. Well, what is really interesting to me, Deb, is that 
you know, we do about a third of my office works in social media. So mm-hmm. it's not at all that we don't think that this is not a right. very important thing. But what I would point out is this. There are only six known ways that somebody can communicate with somebody else in a digital slash social media format. And that mm-hmm. includes cap locks, punctuation, emoticons, and right. vocabulary choice. Mm-hmm. There are 217 known ways that people communicate to each other face, when they're face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's hand motions, that's how they're dressed, there's facial expressions, and that's uh, vocabulary, timbre of voice, volume of voice, all the rest of these things. Right. So we've got thousands of years of, as biological entities, of talking to one another and all the cultural norms that have come up with communicating face-to-face. And those work in our favor because in word of mouth, the, act, the average word of mouth conversation is only 32 seconds long, mm-hmm. right? I know this about you. I love Southwest Airlines as an example. I know you fly a lot. I see you, you know, at swim team practice. And I'm like, Deb, oh, my God, you know, I thought about you the other day. You really need to look at Southwest, blah, 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 free bag. Right. And then you go on to the next thing. And then you go on to the next thing. A long word of mouth conversation is two minutes because then you Mm say, oh, well, how many free bags? And it's like, I don't know. I didn't only ever take one, but I think I've seen something that's like two. And then the third one is only 75 bucks. And then and you're like, well, what about international? And then, you know, maybe then we pull out our phone to see is like, I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. let's pull out the, the machine of all infinite knowledge and let's look it up. That whole interaction is so amazingly valuable because mm-hmm. now instead of at worst case, instead of all possible airline flying, you go from Denver to wherever it is you're supposed to be going. Now, now your choices are three. The thing that you always used in the past, the thing mm-hmm. that you were just thinking about before we talked and the thing that we talked about. Right. Well, and, you know, it's it's that face-to-face interaction that really is critical because, you know, maybe I did post on Facebook and I said, tell me what airline. And somebody says, oh, I think Southwest is the greatest thing in the world, you know, or whatever. And then I fly on them and something disastrous happens. I go back to them and I say, what the heck? And they say, oh, I was joking. You know, you, you, it's as you said, we don't get that. Even if they'd put LOL or whatever, but you know, it, it does tie in because maybe they say, you know, maybe I post on social media and I say, you know, tell me about this airline. Somebody says, contact me or, you know, and then I take it that step further, you know, so that I find out more about it. And, and that's why I think social media is still so important. And, and I think it, you know, it will continue to be, but it's it is that face to face. It's the going to the networking meetings, as long as they're the right networking meetings. I mean, you know, don't waste your time going to the things that, you know, aren't going to benefit you. But we it, it, we just get so much more out of face to face. And the sad thing is, I think we've gotten away from that an awful lot. You know, I've had people who tell me, oh, I don't I don't network in person anymore because all I ever do is use social media. And I'm like, oh, you know, unless you live in a cabin in the woods where nobody else is around you. You need to get out and actually meet people. You, you have to. There's just so much more information that gets shared. There's so much. There's, there's not been a study about the difference between word of mouth and broadcast or word of mouth and social media that doesn't clearly show across whatever metric you're trying to reach that word of mouth is a couple orders of magnitude more effective. And that includes trust. That includes spread rate. That includes mm-hmm. re- repetition of story. That includes believability. That includes all those things. We as humans are programmed to talk to one another. That right. is what we do. And it's really great that we have these other tools. And like I said, we have there. there's not a tool that we don't use here in this office or that we haven't used in the last five years. Because we don't really mm-hmm. think there's um, you know any new marketing tactics that have really been created. Right. In the last four, maybe 5,000 years, mm-hmm. what we do think is that there is the right tactic for the right space. And as long as that tactic is about creating as many conversations as possible, then that's the best tactic to use. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and one of the things that I, I want to emphasize and, and have you really talk about is the fact that it's this word story. You know, and, and you can't tell a story in a newspaper ad. Um, now, the, there are obviously some broadcasts that do. I mean, probably one of the best known that that we just kind of hear all the time, and we'll go back to the, the, the beer conversation, is Budweiser. You know, especially Super Bowl time when they have the story about the lost puppy and the, the you know, when all, oh, and then, of course, everybody shares it on social media. Does it make us buy more beer? <laughs> Maybe, maybe not, but they knew how important it was to tell that good story because how many other Super Bowl commercials do we even remember the next day besides the Clydesdales and the Lost Puppy? Right, and you know, I, I have several friends who work for Budweiser, and, and we've had this conversation, and I, mm -hmm. all my friends, if you're listening to this now, hello, St. Louis, uh, <laughs> and I've been you know, all over there. There is there is nothing wrong with a Super Bowl ad. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, there's a guy out of Stanford that just came out with a study in the last year that shows people, particularly beer companies, pizza companies, and fast food people, and movies, why they make money on doing Super Bowl ads, and therefore they keep coming back year after year, right? Mm -hmm. So just because – just because I am a fan of this particular way of marketing does not mean that other stuff is not any good or that other stuff right. doesn't work, right? What's really interesting is you seeing these big purchasers of broadcast time, whether you're AT&T or you're Budweiser or whatever, they're now coming and talking about word of mouth and trying to understand word of mouth because they have seen their competitors – use that and use it very effectively. Right? Mm -hmm. 10% of all of the beer in the United States now is sold uh, is, a, is a craft beer. Right? right. None of those craft guys have, have ever had the money. There's a couple of craft guys now that have the money to do broadcast mm -hmm. and, and big sponsorship, but that's only been in the last couple of years. Right? Right. Fat Tire has some money to broadcast. I mean, you're out there in Colorado. Think about, think about this. Think about Dale, right? Mm -hmm. Dale and his and his great, you know, craft beer in a can revolution. Literally, mm -hmm. here's a guy where the entirety of the world is putting craft beer in bottles. Right. And he likes to go hiking. And mm -hmm. so he's got his craft beer company up there, and bottling lines are really expensive. And somebody will give him a canning system because no one was using cans. Right. Someone giving a canning system for free. So he's like, all right, let's put craft beer in a can. And people are like, craft beer in a can? That's crazy. And then some people try it, and they go, oh, my God, Ooh. this is really good. Mm -hmm. And it's in a can, so I've got cognitive dissonance because nobody ex ever expected canned beer to be any good because notoriously canned beer was not as tasty as beer in a bottle, whether that is a real taste thing or just some sci some psychology going on, that's the <laughs> way everybody thought mm -hmm. about it. And mm -hmm. so now here's all these craft beer people are saying, oh, and by the way, blah, 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 Dale, blah, 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 Oscar, blah, 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 in a can. Boom, they sold it. He started an entire revolution, and now people are canning craft beer, right? All right. off of conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, somebody mentioned, hey, you know, this would be good if – yeah. And, you know, and, and, and it comes back to, again, that story, you know, how did he do it? Why did he do it? And, and that's where people are like, oh, you know, it wasn't just that he went, let's start canning our beer. He got the machine for free. I mean, yeah. somebody gave him one and literally it was like a hand done one. And so mm -hmm. when you go back and so it's, is the company's name is called Oscar's Blues and, mm -hmm. um, and it's Dale's Pale Ale. Uh, mm -hmm. And when you go back and you go like on their website or you go look at the guy who's the founder and, you know, his part of his bio is, you know, blah, 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 2007, blah, 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 free thing, blah, 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 hand, you know, hand doing mm -hmm. it. And it's great. It's a story. Um, my friend um, who started uh, his vodka company down in Austin, Texas, um, mm -hmm. you know, he's the same way, you know. His story, in fact, they took it off the website about three years ago, but they actually had – and he's, he's interesting. He was an engineer uh, before he was a vodka maker, and mm -hmm. he will tell the entire story, and it's this story he's telling is the story of word of mouth. And what right. always made me laugh about him telling the story is as an engineer, 
he remembers his case, his annual case volume every year going back to the beginning. So right. he can trace in his mind, he can trace, oh, we did this, and then the, the vodka went here, and then we did this, and the vodka went here. But ever mm-hmm. since the beginning, so he and a woman named Elizabeth were the first, like, two people down there at his company. And Elizabeth mm-hmm. was out there doing the marketing, and this, this guy's name is Tito. And Tito is out there doing all, of the, doing all the making and some of the marketing. And they just said, we just got to go talk to people. And we mm-hmm. just got to go talk to people and talk to people. And there were a couple of years of talking to people and all of a sudden it starts to take off and then it starts to take off some more and they tell two friends and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And thus you and, they make, they, and, they'll, they'll move a half a million cases a year off of that and a little tiny ad in the Wall Street Journal that they mm-hmm. put there right. years ago. And it's exactly what you said. It's they tell two people and they tell two people and they tell two people. You know, it's not, I saw an ad in the Wall Street Journal that talked about it. No, it was, you know, the guy down the street told me, hey, this is a pretty good vodka. You might want to try it sometime. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, even if I don't know the guy down the street, just the fact that there was a person that was associated with it as opposed to an ad. And, and you mentioned it before. You know, we don't believe ads because ads lie to us. And, you know, and, and one of the things that and this is just my pet peeve are these celebrity spokespeople ads. You know, I'm sorry, I am not going to buy a vino lotion because Jennifer Aniston hawks it. Or, you know, I'm not good. Now, that's not to say some celebrity spokespeople don't have good commercials. I mean, some of them are absolutely hilarious. But, you know, I'm not, they're not going, I'm not going to buy a product simply because a celebrity is the person who sells it. In fact, sometimes it turns me off because I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, this person makes millions of dollars a year. And they're talking about the fact that they still, you know, use this product that I can go buy at Walgreens. <laughs> exactly. So, and and maybe they do and maybe they don't, right? And so mm-hmm. with, here's the interesting thing. So we work with a couple different bands and mm-hmm. uh, they have the bands that we work with most have actually gotten, you know, pretty famous. And one of the, one of the lead guitarists for one of the bands, their, their genre is country music, but mm-hmm. he works Doc Martens. And he's mm-hmm. worn Doc Martens like for for decades. Mm-hmm. And so when his band was starting to take off, you know, the record label came and said, oh, we're going to, you know, we really got to do something about those shoes. Yes, their image consultant he, talked to them. Yes. And he <laughs> he's a very polite person, but he I think he did the polite version of hell no. You know, yeah. These are the shoes I wear on stage and this is why and these are the shoes that I always wear. And mm-hmm. so down the road, you know, that particular company came to him and said, hey, we see you wearing these shoes. You know, can you tell us about it? Mm-hmm. And then to the brand, he goes, oh, my God, I love your shoes, blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. he is a fan, right? We're all fans right. of somebody. No matter who mm-hmm. we are, we all have fans of somebody and have sort of that fan experience. Right. Well, and his fans knew that he loved Doc Martens because they saw him in him. He might tweet about it. You know, there were all of these other things. And so then it comes back to this one word that you have so many times throughout your book, and that's the word authentic. When he said, I like Doc Martens, we went, okay. And and not, sure, you're just being paid to to say that. It was like, oh, cool. You do like Doc Martens. And and I think that's where the, the actual rubber meets the road in telling the stories comes in is that they do have to be authentic. So talk to us about why that's so important. So here's the really interesting thing. By the time any North American is 10 years old, they Mm -hmm. have been exposed to 1 million broadcast commercials. (laughs) Today, the average North American is hit with 14,000 in excess of, slightly in excess of 14,000 commercial messages every day. Mm -hmm. So much so that we don't really even register them anymore. they're, They're the marketing equivalent of the noise that your refrigerator makes. Mm-hmm. So stay it's there, kitchen, but you know, mm-hmm. and just get real quiet mm-hmm. and just concentrate, and you'll and hear your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. But every day you're running around doing all this, the hoi polloi of your life. You know, you're running around doing all these things. You don't hear that. That's that's basically what broadcast is. So mm-hmm. what's been fascinating for me is that you don't notice these things until somebody brings them up to you, and then you say, "Oh wow." 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, word of mouth, I, it's, it's fun to do word of mouth marketing. Um, mm-hmm. But I always tell people, look, if this was the 1920s, I would be building radio stations. Right. And if it's the because 19- that was what happened in the 1920s. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, because it was the effective thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it was the 50s, I'm, I would have been mad men, except I couldn't drink that much at lunch because then I'm just really <laughs> awful in the afternoon, right? I'm sleeping or something like that. But look, marketing is about selling more stuff to more people more often for more money. Right. And there was a guy named Sergio Zeman. He's the first person I ever heard say that quote, and I believe it is his original thought. But it is a really good thing for us to remember. And so in this day and age, when – the American public have basically left the theater broadcast because there's just too many and they just can't process them. And at the same time, the average American has more demands on their time and more demands on their money than any other time in history. They are moving from the thing that they don't really trust to the thing that they do trust and that thing that they do trust over and over and over again in every possible way that people have measured that is conversation between them and somebody that they know about a product or service that those people that they're talking to, the person hearing the story thinks they're expert in that. And when they do that, the sell-through rate is two orders of magnitude more than broadcast. Is one mm-hmm. so for every one that broadcast can sell, word of mouth can sell one hundred. Wow. And when you put them together, then there's no space. Then the Venn diet, mm-hmm. then you know, then there's no space for anybody to move because we've got story and we've got broadcast. And broadcast mm-hmm. reinforces, oh, I should tell this story, right? Because the average word of mouth influencer will their story gets shared eight factorial times, which mm-hmm. is eight times seven times six times five, blah, 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 which is forty thousand three hundred and seventy-five. Mm-hmm. The non-influencer their stories get shared three factorial, which is three times two times one, which is six. Mm-hmm. So 10% of the population, 40,000 shares. 90% of the population, six shares. Right. It's that 10% that lead the other 90% of all of us North Americans into buying everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and we might even lose who that original person was, you know, because how many times have we heard this? Well, you know, I heard somebody say that, yes. blah, 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 blah. I mean, and, and because maybe it's that you're the third or fourth, you know, person down that row. So you don't care who it was. You didn't know who that original person was. But because it came from a trusted source and that came from a trusted source and that came from a trusted source, then you believe, even though you don't know who that first person was, who that influencer was, you are believing that story. That is exactly right. And that's just and that that's just how we operate as people. So what's really interesting is word of mouth operates in the exact same people way that people want to operate and that Mm -hmm. people actually operate. So it is mm-hmm. not interruptive. It is not interceptive. You're not putting your commercial in between plays of the football game. You're saying, watch the football game. We'll talk afterwards, or we'll talk right. at halftime, or we'll talk mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Don't let me interrupt you with my story. My story you'll keep, because mm-hmm. as an influencer, right, one of the things is that they're intrinsically motivated in that they're not getting paid to mm-hmm. influence you. So mm-hmm. they don't really care when it happens. Right. They just care that it does happen. Mm-hmm. That makes it so much more effective. Right. You know, And one of the things you mentioned, and I can already tell we have to have you back on again, because we didn't talk in any way about how a small business owner can do this when they have no budget. And, and so I definitely want to have you on again to do that. But budget is kind of one of those things, you know. So you just mentioned, you know, that the the influencer isn't being paid. Now, sometimes they actually are. But I love the fact in your book where you give the example where, say, you're talking to people to determine if they're going to be influencers. And you offer them either money to, to do this or something cool that's part of it. So, you know, maybe you are wanting to sell a, you know, a, a part to a, a Porsche, I believe was your example. And, you know, and so you say, you know, okay, you can have $5,000 to do this, or you can have a couple laps around a track in a Porsche. 
the influencer is the one who goes, oh my gosh, I'll take the laps and the track because they're not, they're, they're there for the fun of it. You know, and, and sure they might get some swag. They might get, you know, they might actually get paid for it, but that's not why they're there to tell the story. Yes. They're there to suck up the experience. Now, yeah. is it possible for a brand to pay you so much money that, oh, well, dude, of course, you know, it's a million mm -hmm. dollars, please let, to, let me hear all about your new light bulb product, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, that's finding people who want to get paid, or as mm -hmm. we say in the office, people who like free stuff because it's free. What right. you want to do in my light bulb example or in your Porsche example is find people that are so into light bulbs or so into Porsches that when we say, ooh, we have this thing and it's really cool and it's about this light bulb, you're like, oh, light bulbs, I love light bulbs, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Because right. and and if they got some free light bulbs out of the deal, well, you know that was just kind of a cool perk. Well, that was a cool that was a cool perk, right? And so there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, mm -hmm. we would love to give influencers stuff for us when we're doing giveaways. Like uh, my friend Mark Schaefer just sent me four copies of his book. I don't have mine yet. <laughs> I'm sure they're I'm sure they are in the mail. He sent me four. Mm -hmm. Knowing that I, because I do love Mark's work, and I read the mm -hmm. first half of it um, this morning because I was mm -hmm. traveling between one place and another, and I saw so a mm -hmm. little time. And so now, not only do I know three people that I'm going to go home, and I'm going to write a note to, and I'm going to put it in a thing, and I'm going to ship it to them, mm -hmm. I probably know another ten people. So I'm thinking about sending Mark. Is like, hey, thanks for the three. But if you have an extra 10, I'm going to send them to this person, this person, this mm -hmm. person, this person. They all know me. They all right. know that I'm not sending around junk. So mm -hmm. I know when they get it and open it up and it's from me and the note is going to be, hey, read this book, thought about you, think it would be awesome about, you know, X thing that you're currently working on. You know, I uh, hope to see you soon. Mm -hmm. Right. You're gonna, they're going to at least open it and look at it. And if they read enough of it to where they see the same thing that I saw, two things happen. One, they think I'm cool, which is awesome because who doesn't want to be thought of as cool? Right. And second, mm -hmm. they end up reading the whole thing. And while I love Mark a great deal, the let's just say my friend is the CEO of Coca-Cola. I know Tar, mm -hmm. but he's not. we're not friends. But let's just say that we're best buds if I – Mark could send a thousand copies of this book to the Coca-Cola company in hopes that Mutar would get them. And the likelihood that he would get one and read it is pretty negligible. But if right. he and I have mm -hmm. been buds for 10 or 15 years and mm -hmm. I send this to them, he's going to be like, you know what? Ted's not too bad of a guy. I'll take 30 seconds. I'll take two minutes mm -hmm. and browse through this. And if something catches his eye because Mark's an awesome writer, then, then you know, it's up to him I've made the introduction. I started mm -hmm. the process. Then it's about his work. Does it win the rest of the day? Right. And back to the, the fact that you got nothing out of it. You know, it's not like you did a link to Amazon to your affiliate program to say, hey, go buy the book here. You said, hey, that's a great book. You know, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, well, you know, I'll send you another one, you know, something different in the future. You know, it's, it, and that comes back to that authentic. You know, you thought they would like it. And so you took the time to do it. Yes. And this is the point about going back to about talking to people, you know, and why be authentic. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's so much, you know, and I'm just going to go ahead and use the word because I believe it is the technical and accurate word. There's mm -hmm. so much bullshit that goes on in America that if you've lived past the age of 15 in the United States, then you are able to separate the wheat from the chaff in conversations. So mm -hmm. the only way to legitimately get in front of as many consumers as possible is to embrace authenticity and be willing to share. And the willingness to share means you have to be willing for somebody to tell you no. Right. To say that's and not to see me. the warts. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. We all have, we all have warts, you know, yeah. not everything is super awesome all the time. It's, right. it's just about sharing. And if you dig it, that's great. And if you don't dig it, if it's not for you, then mazel. Then I, as an influencer, say, oh, wow, I thought that they were into uh, sports cars, but it turns mm -hmm. out they're only into American cars, and I really like Porsche. So I'm mm -hmm. taking them in my mental line, don't, don't worry about Porsche stories for John anymore because he really likes American muscle cars. Right. Great. Done. Cool.
Well, speaking of done, we are done for the day, which I hate because, as I said, we didn't even touch the subject of how a small business owner can use word-of-mouth marketing, and I think that's so critical. So, Ted, we will definitely have you on again. But before we leave, tell people how they find your company online and how they can connect with you and get your great information. So the company is in Atlanta, Georgia, and if somebody Googles Fizz and my name, Ted Wright, or Fizz and Atlanta, uh, they'll find it, or you can just go directly to Fizzcore, F-I-Z-Z-C-O-R-P dot com, um, and the book is available on Amazon, and if you're in a town that has an independent bookstore, please um, go buy from that indie bookstore. We're big fans of indie bookstores here in town uh, and in our office, and we'd love for you to uh, uh, go find your local indie bookstore and get a copy of Fizz or have them order you one. Uh, Perfect. Because they know a lot about books there. Love it, love it. Well, again, Ted, thank you so much. And to everyone, have a great day, and we will talk with you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.